I want to see more solutions-oriented focus on our environment. I want to see that we have really made progress in the case of equitable access to opportunity in our country and equitable and equal application of justice, both at the street level, in the courts, in sentencing. We've always stood by that at the Mortgage Family Foundation because it's my value, it's Carrie and John's value, it's the value of the family. This week's guest, John Farnham, lives every single day in all his interactions, focusing on making what seems impossible possible. In his words, viewing everything through the lens of yes. His life values, principles and work ethic were developed from growing up in a loving family environment in Helena, Montana, USA. Given up for adoption by his 14-year-old birth mother, John was blessed with deeply caring adoptive parents and siblings. John's path has been defined by his desire to live a life in service to others. Following his personal maxim, do what sings to your heart. In the first half of this interview, John talks openly and passionately about his upbringing and the impact of both his birth and his adoptive parents. From around 50 minutes in, John talks about the disruptive innovation he is driving in philanthropy and transforming communities in the role of Deputy Disruptor and Chief of Staff at the Morgridge Family Foundation under Chief Disruptor Carrie Morgridge. John breaks down how they bring people and organisations together to solve complex problems, applying what he describes as a venture philanthropy model. From social and educational inequities, food insecurity to infant mortality afflicting minority communities, they are leveraging their network to alleviate these issues. John then breaks down the Morgridge model and theory of change and explains their four pillars of disruption. John also discusses the innovation approach they are taking to educate the next generation of philanthropists and their approach to environmental philanthropy. John is a deeply thoughtful and spiritual, kind-hearted and community-driven individual. He's evidence that amidst the strife and suffering that we've been witnessing over the last 18 months, there are people under the radar making the lives of those less fortunate better. I hope you enjoy this conversation with John Farnham. John, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here, Mark. Yeah, well, we have to give a big thanks and shout out to Kelly Loth uh, for recommending that we interview you next when we interviewed her a few weeks ago. And uh, we finally got around to sitting down together. And I'm sitting here in New York in Neuhaus, the members club. And you are where? I'm in Denver, Colorado at the Mortgage Family Foundation headquarters. Very interesting. So we'll probably come on and hear about what the Mortgage Family Foundation is exactly. Well, before we start and talk about your upbringing, your childhood, I recently did a, a podcast where I talked about my reasons for starting this podcast. And it was really down to an exploration of serendipity. And I started with three people I knew and then asked them who should we interview next. And what I love about the serendipity um, of relying on guest recommendations uh, is that whoever we interview is how often they are just bang on right for the podcast that mm-hmm. we've rarely had anyone have gone they don't really fit because you particularly and I read on your LinkedIn profile this great quote which said I see the world through the lens of possibility and devote all my energy and effort to making possible real and I think that is just so such a perfect coming together of a guest and the subject matter and the exploration of the podcast. It's a perfect Venn diagram. So I'm really looking forward to hearing your story. Thank you. I, I take, I live that every single day and in all of the interactions I have, that is the forefront is making what seems impossible possible and seeing everything through the lens of yes. 
Okay then, well, given you that's the way you live your life every day, talk to us about your upbringing before we get into your, your life in marketing and philanthropy, which I think probably sums up the, the area that you're focused on. I believe from what I've read and, and heard about you before that you were a slightly different upbringing to a lot of our guests in that you were adopted and brought up in a ranch <laughs> in a place called Helena, Montana, in an environment that you've described as a daycare centre, a daycare centre surrounded by lots of extended family, which does sound a bit lively. So I'd love you to just to give us um, a sense of how that has translated into your worldview and the way that you live your life. I would love to share that with you. Yes, my birth mother uh, was 14 when she got pregnant and 15 when she had me. And she was sent to the Florence Crittenden home in Helena, uh, Montana, for her to have me and finish out her pregnancy. And my mom and dad had just previously adopted my older sister, not biological, about my sister. Shortly before they learned that my birth mother was coming to Helena from Missoula to have a baby. And so Catholic Charities called my mom and dad and said, we know you just received Janae, but we have another baby going to be born. And would you consider adopting a second child? And my parents up until this time had been trying to have their own biological children. My mom was 30. My dad was 29 when they adopted me. And so they had been trying for quite some time to have their own children and were not successful. And so the original reason that I like to lead with yes is because my mom and dad said yes to adopting me. Wow. And so from there, I I was born in Helena at St. Peter's Hospital, at which my mom was the head of the surgical department for over 30 years. And she and my dad adopted me. I Within three days, I was in their loving home. And the rest is history. It, it's been, when I talk about, it's like a daycare center. The reason it was like a daycare center is because our ranch was like the family hub for cousins and aunts and uncles. My grandfather, uh, and grandmother, it was their ranch, which the siblings inherited. And so it was just a hub of activity. My One of my uncles lived on the ranch. So it was always, if, if it, we were a family of six, and there were always at least 12 people at the dinner table. Wow. And when you say ranch, a lot of people don't aren't American, probably not have a concept of a ranch as having horses on it. But is this like a farm? And with cows and and what it's was, not what was it's it? not a farm. It was, it's a cattle ranch, and so we raised cattle. And at, at the highest point, we had seventeen horses. They were working horses. It's a western ranch, and we would grow the the only things we would really grow were alfalfa and wild hay to feed the cows before they were um, sold. Wow. We also had a smattering of four H animals. Like I, all four of us kids were in four H, and we raised. Um, steers, we raised sheep, we raised pigs, uh, you name it. We we entered it into 4-H. So I bet you were kept busy as a kid playing out, not just we were on very ranch, but busy. Working, working on the ranch. Yes, working and playing. I remember very vividly one uh, afternoon, my cousin Timmy and I were on our tractors. The tractors were poised to um, work like a sawmill. So there was a big stack of logs in front of them. And on the other side of the logs was a river. And the, my, in my parents' home, if, you, if the tractor was running, we just had an antenna to the, fed the television. If the tractor was running, the television picture would get all snowy and would, would garble up. 
Well, we were out at the tractors and if you push the button, but you don't have the throttle pulled out, it won't start. So we would push the button and they would turn over like they were running and we pretended we were having tractor races. Hmm. Well, mine accidentally started. And so I'm on this tractor, a little kid, I'm probably six years old. And my tractor goes up and over the whole stack of lumber and right into the river. My dad comes running out of the house because he knows exactly that a tractor has started because the TV just went haywire. (laughs) And it was always an adventure on the ranch. Always an adventure. Do you think that instilled in you any certain work ethic or set of values growing up in that type of environment? It definitely did. I have a very strong work ethic. I, I don't do work. I do what feeds my soul and therefore it, it's not work. So what I do in, in the world of philanthropy is, is similar to what you would do on a ranch. The work never stops. You are, are always at it around the clock, 24 seven. You're looking for the next thing to invest in the next way you can change a neighborhood, a life, a community, our world. And that is the same way it is on a ranch. It doesn't stop because it's five o'clock. The work continues. There's evening feedings. There's, there's calving that happens overnight. There's just stuff that happens constantly. And that's how I live my work life. I don't want a job where I clock in, clock out. I want to work in a place that is heartfelt and passionate and something that, that fills my soul. It is funny when you think about, I think it was, was it either Homo Deus or Sapiens reading that book by Yuval Noah Harari about the evolution of humanity and that we use terms like work-life balance as if it's something to be attained and strive for that's a good thing. But really that only came into our lexicon, let's say, during because of industrialization. And through the sort of arc of human history, when you think about it, the people were farmers and foragers, you know, everyone just did. It was There was no sort of separation. So in a way, the, what you're describing there almost feels like it's a direction we're moving in again as humanity as we move away from industri- the industrial age to a post-industrial age where people have to become more fulfilled and more creative. And even if we get to a point at which we have universal basic income, whatever the future of work looks like in a machine learning age, it uh, that's sort of attaining that type of attitude to life and and perception towards what is work as not being work and just as you described it is something that feels very aspirational i see we we commissioned a report called the future of giving through our partner sparks and honey also in new york and it's available uh, for a free download on the thinkmff.org website and in it it talks about this this next generation gen z and how they're going to be so led by values and passion for not only the work that they do, but also the products that they buy, you know, where they live. And so I feel like it is something, it, it underscores your point. We, I believe we are moving back toward that more egalitarian type of, uh, of a lifestyle. Yeah, I hope so. Yes. Have you, I mean, we can come and talk about it later, but the great book called <sighs> Winners Take All by, yes. oh, the journalist, and I should remember his name, where he talked about the his, he had this fundamental issue with philanthropy and giving, but we can maybe talk a bit about that later. But anyway, let's ju- jump back to you and your upbringing. We always ask a question about defining moments from our guests' childhoods, but I read about yours um, 
being a trauma, which I sounds like a, to be a, a big defining moment in your childhood was the trauma that you 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 suffered of having your father having a brain tumor age age thirty five, and I think you were around six. That must have had a deeply profound impact on your life and that of the rest of the family, particularly given that you were adopted at that point in time, and therefore it must have had a defining moment in any child's development. So perhaps you could just reflect on that. Absolutely. It, we were really fortunate in that we have, as a family, a massive extended family, very, very dear family, friends, and a network around us of support. Uh-huh. It was a really challenging time, not only because my dad was sick and, and eventually had brain surgery in Montana in, in 1976, but that it was successful also, but that at the same time, my mom and dad were moving into their brand new house on the ranch. And so this confluence of the trauma happening with my dad and uh-huh. the, the excitement of, of a brand new house and, you know, our own bedrooms and, and everything that was coming along with it, that goodness got muted a bit. And it was a defining moment. Um, in my life. It, it changed the relationship I had with my dad, my dad's relationship with my mom, and our relationship as a family to one another. We became so heavily reliant on our extended family just for the emotional support. You know, we, we are, are fans of AEI, American Enterprise Institute, and in particular, their work in poverty studies. And that, what that work really leans into is that it takes two adults to raise children. It takes uh-huh. two adults to have the emotional support, two adult income typically, the, the love that's required and needed to raise a family. It takes two adults. It could be it could be two dads, two moms, a mom and a dad, a daughter and a grandmother, whatever it is. It takes two adults. And we saw that play out as a family so wholeheartedly when my dad had to have brain surgery. It was a frontal lobe tumor and... When you do anything with the frontal lobe, executive function is in jeopardy. And his executive function um, was damaged to the point where he had to medically retire from Mountain Bell. And so at 35 years old, he's retired. Retire from where? From Mountain Bell, which was the telephone company oh, that the became... Oh, be- like Baby yes, Bells. Yes, yeah, yeah. Baby so, Bells, so wait, that's right. So wait a minute, who was, who was managing the ranch while he was working at Mountain Bell? My grandfather and my uncle. And then other uncles oh, would come in after right. they would do their work. Yes, so there was, it was an all-hands-on-deck operation. But oh, my I mom see. and dad okay. both had jobs off of the ranch. Got you. Okay, then. Right. Yeah. I understand. And so his, with having his executive function jeopardized, he, he, he could not care for, for us kids. And so even during the summers, like when, we, when he would be home, we would be home out of school. We always had another, a nanny or an adult who was uh, present with us mm-hmm. in case you know, we did something like catch a building on fire, which you know, was not out of the question for us. <laughs> or, or a tractor. <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> so, so that was really a, a pivotal point in my upbringing. And, you know, it also, I think it also created a deeper level of empathy in my life, mm-hmm. empathy for my mom and what she was dealing with in being basically an only parent at this point, plus a caretaker, plus running an operating room very successfully. And also empathy for my dad. He's 35 years old and doesn't 
go to work now, his his peer network is not available for him when he's you know when he needs them the most when the days are long, no one's around, he's by himself. And so it, it was a real it was a moment in time where I I found and discovered the role empathy was going to play in my life. Now I'm only six, so I I'm looking back on that. Yeah. But the other level uh, of support that we had was in school. So I was in the first grade. My first grade teacher lived right up the road from us. We we were ten minutes from a ski a ski mountain, and at the base of the ski mountain is where she lived. And so we would ski down after you know every weekend we'd be up at Belmont. We would ski down. She would always have hot cocoa for us at her house, and we would wait there for my parents to come and pick us up from a day of skiing. So I'm in the first grade, and I I felt so loved there. The, our teacher, the principal, everybody at school scaffolded around us. So my sister was in the third grade. I was in the first grade. And later on in the story, my parents ended up having two biological children. Oh, wow. Um, I'm not yes. Just, and so yeah. there are four of us. And in the range of four children, there's only five and a half years from the oldest to the youngest. That also harkened back to it feeling like a daycare center because we were all pretty much the same age. It was, a, it was a, we were a tight knit family. And so they weren't in school yet, but our, the school really, really supported us and was there for our family. I remember, you know, I, I like to talk and I was in first grade and I was in trouble for talking. And so I had to go to the principal's office and I went to the principal's office. I had to sit there and be quiet for five minutes and then go back to the classroom. But when I went back to the classroom, my teacher felt so badly that she'd sent me to the principal she gave me um, these orange circus peanuts candy. And so I thought, this is pretty cool. If I go to the principal's office, I get candy when I come back to the classroom. Now, I didn't do it very often, but that was the outcome of me being so talkative uh, in, in school during, during class. Just before we get into your education, I heard you in an, another interview talk about connecting with your birth mother, learning why she actually gave you up for adoption. And it must be very life-affirming when you, you reconnected with your birth mother. So maybe you could just sort of unpack that sort of impact and the impact that, or the, and the role that had on your life going forward. Sure. And, the, and the support that your, your adoptive parents gave you during that journey. Yes, yes. My, my grandfather, or my, my birth grandfather, he came to the U.S. from Poland. So he's a first-generation immigrant he landed in Missoula, Montana, where he married my birth grandmother. They had two children, um, two girls, my mom being the youngest of the two. And in her own home, my 14-year-old birth mother did not feel loved. And, and I didn't know this until I was 24. She would have been 39 at the time. And it is the, the day that I found her. And understood her story more completely mm-hmm. you know, as a child it makes it's a very clear sightline to the decision of of putting a child out for adoption when you're 14 when you get pregnant at 15 when you have the child it was pretty easy for me to understand but that was not the case the case was that she did not want to bring a baby into a home where she herself didn't feel loved wow. and that is a courageous move for a 14 year old 15 year old to take. Was she a single she child? She really grabbed her own. No, she had an older sister. So she really took charge of, of, of her life and my outcome at the age of 15. 
So her parents, my birth grandmother and grandfather, when I was born, they came to Helena from Missoula. They came with clothing and blankets and all of the necessary things to take me home. And my birth mother stood her ground and said, no, he's not coming with us. What a powerful personality. I mean, strength of character to do that. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And so all the while growing up, my older sister and I, we always knew we were adopted. My parents made it really clear that it was not a mystery. When our our siblings who are bio to my mom and dad would, would tease us about being adopted or, you know, we could be returned or what have you. My mom and dad would say, you know, this, we're going to have this conversation one time. We got to pick Janae and John and we are stuck with the two of you. And it (laughs) didn't come up again. That was it. (laughs) (laughs) What a brilliant way of handling it. Right. Right. So it was, I've got a, I've got a client that runs, um, a psychotherapy practice here in New York called uh, Renicky Associates, and she focuses on adoptive families. I'll have to tell her she'll love. The, she was a guest on the show as well, and she'll love that story to sort of recount to some of her families. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to hear her, her podcast. And so, so it really did have an influence on my life, uh, as much as it had an influence on my life of having this question mark of if if I were in a room and I knew my birth mother was in that room, could I pick her out? Mm-hmm. And it was really around kind of just inquiry, inquiry that started because my my dad's uh, mom passed away, my grandmother, and I was in college and, you know, really thinking big about life and the world and things. And and I thought, you know, why do I, why does this hurt so much? She wasn't my blood, but she was my grandmother still. And so I thought I have, I'm surrounded by so much love in this family. I have another family out there also that might be the same. Mm -hmm. And I think I want to go and find them. And so all along, my parents had said, if we ever chose to, to pursue finding our birth parents, they would support us any way they possibly could. And so this was in January when my grandmother died. And I went back to college after her funeral and told my mom and dad that I think I wanted to find my birth mother. And they said, no worries. Catholic Charities handled your adoption. The name of the attorney was this and that. And give them a call and see what they can do. And so I called. The paralegal was wonderful with me. And she said, why don't we start with this? Why don't you write your birth mother a letter? Uh-huh. You can share in there anything you want to share. If you want to share your contact information and your address, you can do that. And we will mail it to her. And then we'll see where it goes from there. They did that. In, that was in late January. And Every day I would call asking if they had had a response from my birth mother. And every day it was the same story. No, we haven't heard anything. We just haven't heard anything yet back from And how old were you at this point? I was uh, 24. Mm -hmm. And so I said, I'm not satisfied. What is going to be our backup plan if we don't hear from her? Because now I'm feeling like I I don't want anything from her. I don't need anything from her. I just want to know that if there's anything I need to worry about, like, health issues. And then I'm starting to kind of get a little agitated, you know, just, I I want something and I'm not getting it. And so I said, what's our plan B? And they said, well, we can go through the office of vital statistics and statistics and track her last name changes through marriage, her addresses, phone numbers. We can track it. We can find her. It just, it'll take some time. Mm -hmm. And so I I tucked that away in the back of my head thinking, okay, well, we're going to hear from her any day. Well, the days roll on and they roll on. And it, now it comes time for spring break in March. 
and I'm going back to the ranch to spend spring break with my family. And this is going from Laramie, Wyoming, back to Helena, Montana. And so I get back to Helena and I call Catholic Charities and I said, I've just arrived for spring break. I would love to come up and let's start plan B because we haven't heard a word. And they said, give, just give me five minutes and I'll call you right back. And within two minutes, the phone rang and they said, what would you like to know? We can tell you everything about her. And I said, I don't want to know anything over the phone. I want to come to you with my mom and dad. And I want us all to learn at the same time about my mother. So we went into Catholic charities and it is such an interesting story because it was actually in the first operating room where my mother did her first surgery was the lawyer's office. It was an old Catholic hospital that they converted into an office building and where she began her career was in the same exact corner on the same floor where she did her first surgery. So, so your mother was a doctor. So your mother was a surgeon. No, she was. A, she's a nurse. She's an RN. Oh, sorry. Right. Um, okay. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. A surgical. A surgical RN. Yes. Okay. Wow. That that is serendipitous. It's yeah. so serendipitous. It was. It was just crazy. When she walked in, she said, "This was the first operating room I ever uh, did a procedure in." So it was. It was really interesting, and, and and it meant so much to me to see that connect that connectedness wow. of the world. So we learned at that time that. My, my birth mother was a, a student at uh, the University of Utah. She was studying architecture. So I'm on spring break. She is preparing for finals to become an architect. And she, I have three half-sisters. It was only two years later than my, from my birth that my birth mom got pregnant again. And at that point, at 17, she felt like she could do this on her own. She and leave she, the family, the family yes, home. So. She kept my sister Trina and they, they left her home. They left her parents' care. And so it, it's been a, a, a joy-filled and interesting journey. I spent the next seven days I've, of spring break oh, on the phone with my mom. I've got a question about her. Why didn't yeah. she answer your letters in the first instance? She never has received the letter. Even of today, what? she has never received the letter. It is so crazy, isn't it? USP, <laughs> USPS has got a lot to answer for. <laughs> It is crazy. It was, it, it, she's, not, and, and even to this point, I don't even recall what I put in the letter. I do know I had my phone number and my address wow. and, and the address of our ranch in there. But I know it was a brief letter, but I, she's never received it to this day. Wow, that's incredible. Okay, so you started connecting with her. And what was the experience like there? Because that must have been a, an experience for you. And clearly, it must have had an impact also on your adoptive parents of that. You'd oh, some. yes. I was really not aware of the impact it was having on my family around me. It was it was very hard for them to be observing me on the phone two hours at a time, three hours at a time with my birth mother, learning about her life, learning about the lives of my sisters, learning about the lives of my birth father, all of, just the, understanding who this family is. All the while, the family who I love and adore and love and adore me are witnessing this and Hearts are breaking. Spirits are sinking. The concern that they're going to lose me yeah. was Cause, rising. It was incredibly difficult. And I didn't realize it until it was time for me to go back to college. And the tears were nonstop. They must have been hiding it, that, that vulnerability. They, but for you not yeah. to have noticed it, because you said you, you were quite empathetic as you sort of grew up in that environment. 
Yep. Yeah, it was not until I left to the, I was preparing to leave that it really it really surfaced. So I did a lot of little tricks to help them to calm them, leaving sticky notes all over the house you know, <laughs> and the remote control wow. battery components it, uh, on the phone in the refrigerator inside of Tupperware containers in pots and pans throughout the kitchen. Everywhere, just these affirming love notes to not only my mom and dad, but my siblings as well. It 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 was a very uh, frightening that's, moment that's for them. I hope they were color-coded. Yes. <laughs> Sticky notes everywhere. So, yeah, dad knew his one, mum knew hers, and the, sister, yes, yes. the siblings knew theirs. Okay, but you obviously, you must have got through that that period with them. And did they did they ever all come, come together after that and all meet each other? No, no my my um, siblings have never met my my half siblings, my, my birth siblings. My birth mom has met my mom and dad. Uh-huh. It was funny for a long time. I would go back to uh, Salt Lake City where my birth mother lives. And, you know, I would talk to both my birth mother and my mom and dad regularly. And, you know, they would say, well, tell Helen, my birth mother, tell her hi. My birth mother would, you know, say thank you to your parents for giving you such a blessed life. And I finally said, you know what? You all need to talk to one another. I don't need to be your go-between. So we met in Helena one summer. I'll never forget it. It was very, very nervous. Helen was on her way from Salt Lake to Missoula to see her parents. And I said, why don't you stop in Helena? We'll go grab lunch and and you can all meet. And we did that. And you can imagine the tears and the gratitude and the love for one another. And, you know, my parents being so grateful and so thankful that she had the courage to provide for me a life that she was not going to be able to provide. And, and she, for my parents giving me a life that she, she too couldn't provide and in the blessed life that I, that I live today, it's, it, you know, I was so shaped by my parents' values, by the values of our family and by our, our massive extended family. Did you, did she ever try and track you herself to find out where you are, who the adopted family, family was? Yes. Without you knowing she it. She would come. She would call Catholic Charities every year and she would check in on me and just make sure I was safe and healthy. They would give very brief thumbs up, you know, everything's fine. When I was 12, when she did her her annual call, they slipped and said, John is doing fine. And and then she knew my name. Uh And as a result of that, Catholic Charities had to call my mom and dad and say, we accidentally said John's name with Helen on the phone. Mm-hmm. And so therefore it created this deep level of fear and concern in my mom and dad that, that she might come back and try to take me away. Well, these were in the days when adoptions were closed. They were sealed. It was not an open adoption by any means. And it was difficult. It would be difficult to reverse an adoption at the, in that point in time. But that fear always stayed in their hearts. They were always afraid um, that she would come back and try to take me away. And you know, she had her hands full with her own three girls as well. But it was a vulnerability that my parents felt for many, many years. I can imagine, yeah. Yeah. Do you ever sort of wonder how, because you've, because you've now, you've got the two families to compare and see, and you talk about how, well, there's two, que- two questions here. One is having met your half-sisters and seeing 
how their lives have developed and their personalities and characters. Do you ever wonder if how you would have grown up? Would you have been a different person with your birth mother than you are with your adoptive parents? I I definitely would be a different a different person had I been raised by my birth mother. I was raised Catholic. Uh, my birth mother was raised Catholic. And when she was 19, she converted to LDS, Latter-day Saints. And what, what's, what that, can you explain the difference? The Latter-day it's Saints evangelical. is, it's, and it's more, it's not, it's not an accepting religion. Meaning if you look at suicide rates amongst the LGBTQ community in Utah, they are off the charts. They don't compare to anywhere else. I, so it's Mormon. And I, I, it is Mormon. Yes. Ah, right. Okay. Uh, yeah. I'm a gay man and that the way that my parents dealt with me coming out to them Uh as an adult was they stopped going to church for nine months until they could figure out on their own what this meant for them and their relationship with God, their relationship with the Catholic church and their relationship with me. And when they had that discernment is when they started going back to church. What I've seen occur with my birth mother is that the church is the stronger influence over her relationship with who is also um, my, my sister who is also gay and now is trans and is my brother. And so, and the reality of this scenario, it plays itself out when I'm talking with my birth mother and I ask about Michael and she said, I don't know who you're talking about. Who is Michael? And I said, you know, Michael, Michael was Trina. What, what do you call Michael? No, Trina will always be Trina. So just this absolution of, oh. of I feel like it's judgment. Does she, so it's, it, does she connect and talk to Michael? Michael and I have a, do have a relationship with her. My other siblings um, also, as well, it's just not, it's a regular communication is what we have with her. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's also fascinating to me that, that, that is an outcome of the two of us who are gay, now trans, mm-hmm. one trans. I, would t- I told my mom one time when I, I said, you know, if you're looking for a reason that we're gay, you're the only thing we have in common mm-hmm. because we both have different dads. And so if we need to lay blame anywhere, let's lay it right at your feet because you're the only thing we have in common and we're both gay. Uh-huh. And so, you know, it, it got to the point with my birth mothers. She would say, I think the right woman is out there for you. I just think you need to find her or she'll find you. And all this will be back to normal. I said, here's the deal. If you believe the right woman is out there for you, I will believe the right woman is out there for me. If you don't believe that, I'm not believing it either. And of course she doesn't believe that. So that's where we ended it. <laughs> that was the okay. end of the conversations around being gay. Uh, now she is, she loves Paul, my husband, Paul. She's very uh, loving to, to him. In our early days, she would send a birthday gift for me and she would send Christmas gifts for me and Paul would get a note card. Oh, as the years have, have laid down through history, it is now Paul's birthday is as recognized as my own. We both get beautiful gifts at Christmas and at holidays. So she has come to fall in love with the man that I've fallen in love with as, as deeply as I have. Well, that's good. So, so that's great. That. It's really nice that it turned out that way and that you have uh, that strong relationship with her. 
and that she's accepting of your life and your partner. So that's really gratifying. My other question related to that was when you talked early on about the necessity or the, certainly the value and the importance of two parents bringing up a child, regardless of who those parents are, your birth mother, did she bring up her other children, your half-sisters, on her own? I have three half-sisters. She was married to the father of each of the three. So four children, four different dads. She married three of the, of the, the dads of, uh, of her children. So I was the only one that she uh, did not marry the, the, the birth dad. My birth father, come to find out from her, died when he was 35 years old from cardiopulmonary attack. And so everything past 35 for me, I was great. I'm grateful for, um, especially grateful for because, you know, so so your, your birth father died at 35 and your adoptive father had a stroke at a brain tumor at 35. That's right. Yes. The parallel. I could see why you're, as you're approaching age 35, you're going, hang on a second. (laughs) (laughs) That bucket list done. Your serendipity, the serendipityness of the show and of, of my life and of these scenarios is just, it's paramount. <laughs> okay, then. Right. Well, let's move on. I mean, you talked at school about being very talkative, but what was it like for the young John at school and then moving on to what to focus at university on, or believed to be political science at the University of Wyoming? What were your ambitions at that early stage? I mean, you could have been a rancher. Absolutely. And I knew, I knew that was not my pursuit. I, I knew that I was different than the rest of my family. I I always felt that way. The way we process emotionally was different. The way we look at the world, the lens through which we look at the world was different. I'll give you an example of of how, how I mean that my family, you know, getting my dad stabilized and the new normal of, of, of him having a brain tumor and successfully had it removed and getting back to what was going to be our new normal had occurred. And there were times when it, our family could have been far more present in the community, far more engaged philanthropically in our community, in our works. The giving that my family did was largely through their church and then some giving to 4-H different than the way I was right or the way I became as a college student, I embedded myself in as many committees. I was a senator, a student senator at the university of Wyoming. I served on a reproductive health clinic board of directors as a youth voice and youth liaison. I was busy. I was on presidential committees looking at faculty and recruiting for deans. I embedded myself in every possible opportunity I could as a college student. What drove that? I think my family saw our community as being our family. I don't think they had an outward view of community that I have, that I live with every single day. I absolutely have my, my, my family, my chosen family and, and my real family, but I look with a long sight line to the community and to what role can I play in making life better for the guy who's homeless across the street? What can I do to advance opportunity through college and or, or vocational training for, for my niece? How can I yeah. play a role um, that's bigger than me? And in doing so, I look to leadership roles 
And, and, and those roles fed my soul doing that work fed my soul. And so it's just something that's continued to pile on in my life to the point where, you know, I serve on multiple boards of directors. I, I help a number of organizations as a volunteer, raise money. We're deeply involved philanthropically, personally, Paul and I, as well as the career that I have is, is in giving mm. and in helping others. And so that's why I, I see where the difference is in, in the view that, that my family has on the world versus the view I have on, on the world. Paul is so funny. He says, you know, there are days where I'm glad you're from a different gene pool <laughs> when he's talking about my, my, my adopted <laughs> family. And I see that too. There are days where I'm like, oh, I'm so happy that this is not my gene pool. <laughs> mm-hmm. Are you similar to your, to your gene pool? My birth mother and I process things emotionally almost identically. If my one of my half sisters were to say something that was mean or harsh, I can I can feel it like it was said to me. Mm-hmm. And I would talk to my my mom about that and say, "I am so sorry that that, that just happened to you." And and I, we would process emotionally very similarly. Our our worldview is different. I think that our worldview is different, or largely based on. On, on her faith and, and yeah. where she worships. And, and I think that, that her, uh, yeah, that her emotional processing and, and mine are, are so, so aligned. Mm-hmm. So when you were um, throwing yourself into all these activities at university, um, was it with the desire to see, to change the world for the better? To change circumstances or people? You know, my, I was in the College of Allied Health at the University of Wyoming, which is, um, it's focused on medicine. My, my focus was on medicine. And so it was my, my adopted mom and her influence that really had the thumb on the weight of my decision of where I was going to go in life. And so my, my pursuit was a pre-med degree, natural sciences and mathematics. And so that's what oh I wait, got. So where did I, where did I get political science from? I'm not sure. <laughs> okay, but so the work I, I do it would align with it would align with political science as a degree. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, then. So you're going down that sort of med route, right? Okay. Yes, yes, and and get into early stages of medicine, and I would I would spend my summers back in Helena doing internships in the operating room. I do a rotation with anesthesia. I would do a rotation with orthopedics. So I would just take rotations every summer and do do different experiences. And I thought anesthesia was going to be the direction I headed. Well, the further I got away, literally physically from home, the further away that desire was in my heart. And so I got to Dallas, Texas, and said, this is not my, this is not who I am. And so immediately started doing a job hunt for a career move back in Colorado. And I say back in Colorado because when I was a student at the University of Wyoming, my cousin Kim lived in Fort Collins. From Fort Collins to Laramie is only an hour's drive. And so on weekends, I would go and spend my weekend with Kim having dinner parties and do my laundry and study and write papers and fell in love with her community in Fort Collins. And so my my next move was find something in Fort Collins that sings to your heart and that you're going to be good at doing. And that thing that sung to my heart was I became the executive director of the Northern Colorado AIDS Project. Mm-hmm. So very young, just out of school with my undergrad, and the organization has three staff members, small budget, like an $85,000 budget. And when I left after five years, we had five offices throughout all of Northern Colorado. 
We owned two apartment buildings. I had a staff of 15 and uh, a Incredible. budget of a uh, million and a half dollars. And so it was, I'd support myself. I would be at work at two in the morning and be back at a seven thirty breakfast meeting. And so it was, it was, it was a wonderful way to start my career. It was, I felt so impassioned about the work that I was doing. And this was during the time when people were still dying from complications of AIDS. The, the medication cocktail was, was available, but you got, you know, one chance at a class of a drug and there were maybe three classes of drugs that you could take to save your life. So, you know, there were mornings when I would come into the office and I would smell sage. And anytime one of our clients passed, we would sage the building. And so it was too many mornings Wait, so, that I would walk in and and smell sage. So say that again. What What's the role of sage? So there is a, a, a Native American um, ritual of releasing energy and the release of energy comes through a, a ritual of saging your, your space where, where somebody would have been. You open doors, open windows, and you go through this ritualistic burning of sage to release that energy of that human being who was part of your orbit. Wow. I've never heard that. It's a beautiful, beautiful ritual. What does burning sage smell like? It smells... Have you ever smelled sagebrush? or a sage that you would cook with. Mm -hmm. It it smells like that, but with a, a little bit of a char to it as well. And it's done in... I'm going to be um, back right down... I'm going to be right down <laughs> Whole Foods after this. <laughs> it's, okay. it's done in a seashell with a, a feather of a bird to fan it. it. It's very beautiful. I've got to try that. But it has to be something you're trying to release the energy of. It could be, yep, it's an energy releaser. So I'll give you an example. We did it here in our office building at the Mortgage Family Foundation. Some just weird things continued to happen when we built this building. We had a few floods in the basement. We had some, some construction mis mishaps. And I called our friend Lisa Marie and I said, I think I need the building to be saged just to release the energy that's here. And when she came here, she fat discovered more things that we needed to do. But indeed, it 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 cleanses the energy from from space. That is incredible. I I always learn things on the podcast, and I certainly am learning here. So that's great. Okay, then. So you were doing that, and while you were, and what was the name of the AIDS organization? The Northern Colorado AIDS or uh, AIDS. Project NCAP, okay. Northern Colorado AIDS Project. So it's interesting you, that you use that term, do what you're good at and what sings to your heart. A lot of people talk about just focus on what you're passionate about, but it sings to your heart. It's interesting. So, what at that point was singing to your heart that led you down the route and the career direction you've gone in, which is around marketing and philanthropy? And how did that lead you to the foundation that you're working for now? I, I really had worn myself out and burned out working as hard as I was working. And so I took up some time. I took nine months before um, getting back into another career. And this one was interesting. It was, it was still in the human services field. And I, I, I felt always connected in the space of human services and direct service to others. And it was a new role at Goodwill Industries of Denver. It was the vice president of marketing and of development. So mm -hmm. marketing and fundraising. Brand new cabinet level position to the president CEO. And what was wonderful was getting to build the program out. And I 
vowed to myself I was not going to, you know, work around the clock on this. I wanted to have some boundaries. And so I tried my hardest to do that. And it became very clear on my first year review that the agility by which I was accustomed to working and thrived in was not the agility of my peers um, who were vice presidents of uh, respective areas of Goodwill. So on my year one review, I went to the president's office and he probably should have fired me. I had <laughs> stepped on the toes of every single of the other vice president's roles and works in that what they were doing, trying just to bring in tweaks and improvements and ways to look at things differently. And, and is your finish line too close for these clients? Don't we, shouldn't we have higher expectations for them? Well, I ticked off everybody and they all weighed in on my review. And so it was, it was during that review that I, first of all, I was horrified. I've never had a bad review in my life. I was, I was just, it was, it was horrible. <laughs> I was, was just land blasted by and surprised by it. Mm-hmm. And what the president had done, though, is he went to the chair of my board committee, the marketing committee, and said, what are we going to do? We've got to get John some support. And so at that point, what they decided to do was split the role. I could take the development role or the marketing role, and then Mm -hmm. they would fill in the vice president on the other. So I took the marketing role and then was mentored by who became a dear, dear friend, Dale Flowers. We just lost him this last March, but he, he mentored me through the next successful uh, number of years at Goodwill Industries of Denver to when I departed there, it was really hard to leave because my loyalties were so deep to to Tim Welker, the president. He took a chance on me and I took that chance very seriously, that second chance very seriously and gave 110% of myself the whole uh, rest of my career there. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, of course, working that in that space, we had a school to work curriculum for high school students who may or may not be going on to a four-year college. How are we going to get them prepared with work skills, with, with life skills to be successful? And typically these were in really challenging schools where our school to work program was, but it was one of the things that was most exciting about our work at Goodwill, in my opinion, because it was, it was the most hope filled. And I could see, I could see the, the moment in time when a young person would change their attitude from being a burden to being a benefit to society because our coaches were so they they were like parents to the Mm -hmm. students and so with that being the case i was in schools a lot and and around young people a lot and so i was working at this point in time with the arc thrift stores you know goodwill is so well known for their thrift Mm -hmm. store operations and as the marketing vp i would have regular um, meetings, monthly meetings with the president um, and CEO of our nearest competitor. And I, I was really there to, you know, have lunch and keep up, keep current on kind of the competitive landscape. You know, what moves are they thinking of making? And I would bring that back to our um, operations and retail team. And we would then either pivot or go deeper, you know, double down on something we're already doing. But I just use it for intelligence gathering. And he kept trying to get me to come to work for him. And I kept saying no. And, and this went on for, the courting went on for about 11 months. And the benefits got better. The pay kept getting better. I, it, so by the time I finally said yes, I had gone back and forth in my head. And with, with Paul, my husband, do I do it? Do I not? It's, the, it's amazing. I'm going to have a company car. I'm going to have a 70% pay increase. I have 12 weeks of paid vacation. I mean, all these things were scaffolded onto, you know, from month after month after month to the point where I just, I couldn't say no. And it was the hardest decision 
that I think I ever had to make, but it also was one of those that has led me to where I am today. So I'm at ARC, I'm the VP of marketing, where we just bought cerebral palsy of Colorado's home pickup business of used goods. So I'm working with the president CEO of CP of Colorado on a communication strategy to her donors that they put their stuff out for CP of Colorado, but why is an ARC truck picking it up? And so we were devising this, this strategy and Judy Ham runs CP of Colorado and she had learned that I had done a, right when I hit Goodwill Industries, I did a $3 million capital campaign. We closed it out early. It was, it, it was very successful. And she said, would you consider helping me build a school? I need someone to run my capital campaign. I have your boss's permission to contract with you. Would you consider that? And I thought, well, fundraising for a school, I, I would love to fundraise for a school. I think it'd be a phenomenally fulfilling. I don't know how I'm going to do this and my full-time job. And so it became really clear that what Judy wanted was not a consultant. She wanted someone to go and do the ask with the donors and really be an internal fundraiser. And so I made that shift after only being at ARC for nine months over to Cerebral Palsy of Colorado. <clears throat> and doing that with this really great vision of having a building where we had a head start, an early head start, private pay, early childhood education, along with a K through eight charter school that was a scaffolded approach of classical education. And our little ones from Head Start, Early Head Start could just matriculate up into the first grade and we would grow the school grade by grade mm -hmm. by grade. And that vision, I loved. There would be two teachers in every classroom. In the Early Head Start and Head Start program, we were so successful, we would keep out of 700 kids, 115 to 120 kids every year out of special education tracks and that stigma of being a special ed student just by understanding how they learn, what uh -huh. resources they need and give, providing those resources not only to the child, but to the family. And so, you know, on, on day one of first grade, when the kiddos would leave our care and go into the schools, the teachers would be on the phone to our teachers saying, how did you get this kid to learn? What, what are the tricks? How, what do I need to know? And so it was the parents who were really saying, you guys should start an elementary school. What wow. you have here is the magic sauce. We need to continue this. And so that was a really easy vision to get behind. When you've got that kind of a level of endorsement, from parents and the same from teachers who are receiving the kiddos from the Head Start Early Head Start, there's something magical happening there. And so that's what we fundraised to. And in doing the fundraising, a, a woman, Mary Giddens Cronin, she was running the Piton Foundation at the time. She gave us a sizable gift and she said, Carrie Morgridge has got to know about the school. What you're doing here, she is going to love. And so I said, share her number with me and I will make sure that she sees this. And I called Carrie Morgridge for an entire year, every single month for an entire year. And I would get her assistant and she would say, yes, I will pass it on to Mrs. Morgridge. I would leave voicemails at their office, never returned. And the phone number I was calling was Carrie's home phone number where her office was located. I finally got to the point with her assistant. And I said, are you even giving her my messages? Because there is no way somebody can go at this point. It's almost an entire year without calling them, returning a phone call. And she said, I am giving her messages. Yes, I am. And I will give her this one as well. So 
it's Thanksgiving. You must have been thinking back to the letter to your mother going, why do I never get a response? (laughs) (laughs) What is the deal? And so I, I get this phone call on Thanksgiving. It's a phone number I don't recognize. Well, it's Carrie Morgridge. It's her cell phone. She says, I this is John. She goes, hi, it's Carrie Morgridge. I have some time to finally return your phone calls. What can I do for you? Okay. A year has gone. The school building is built. We have 800 students in the building. I said, you should come and see what we're doing. It's phenomenal. And I'd love to share it with you. And I had in my mind, I would be asking her for a capital campaign gift to support mm-hmm. the, you know, our Where was she based? She's here in Denver. Mm-hmm. At the time she has two of her own children, both in high school both in at least two sports at a time and running a multi-million dollar foundation and training for Ironman and, and, and. And so knowing her now, I can see how she could go a full year without returning the phone call because she is so busy all of the time. But she came to the school and what she saw when she walked into a, a second grade classroom was students at the front of the classroom working at an interactive whiteboard putting the continents back together into a solid landmass on a lesson on plate tectonics. The teacher was in the back of the classroom, just making sure the kids kept the lesson on the rails. And she said, what is going on here? And she pointed at the interactive whiteboard. Now I've got a vision that is, you know, the school wide vision. She lasers in on this student engagement, the student learning, student led learning and the educator being uh, a guide, mm. simply a guide. This was before schools had internet. It was before we had one-to-one devices. So what we did at, at Vanguard Classical School was was take the risk and fund ourselves inter- interactive whiteboards in every classroom, and we brought the internet into every single classroom. Totally unheard of at the time. So she understands what she's seeing is going to transform education. But she wants to validate that. And so over the course of the next two weeks, she has brought through the dean of the Mortgage College of Ed, the headmaster of the school where her kids are attending, other academic thought leaders, and just constant rotation of uh, folks trying, uh, validating what she's seeing as the, the next wave of education reform. And every single person validated it. Well, what it led to was the development of what we call our 21st century classrooms at the Mortgage Family Foundation. We became the largest uh, customer of smart boards and Promethean boards in all of North America. We Whoa. had 10, we deployed 10,000 interactive whiteboards throughout the state of Colorado. And then we went outside of the state of Colorado and did even more. And so that is what got Carrie and I introduced. And that is what led to where I am today. And today you're, you're, title is Deputy Disruptor and Chief of Staff at the Mortgage Family Foundation. And Mortgage say that they invest in organisations and reimagine solutions to some of today's biggest challenges. I'd like you to tell us about why it's, what, why, how it's doing that and why it's disrupting philanthropy. But also, am I right in saying that the Mortgage family is from the Cisco empire? That is correct. So John P. Mortgage is the father to John D., for whom I work, uh-huh. who is married to Carrie Warbridge. Right, okay. So John, he had retired from Honeywell, and he, they had friends at, at Stanford who had developed a router because they wanted their com- two computers to talk to one another across campus. Mm-hmm. And John Morgridge saw the power in that and was like, I'll, sure, I'll be your president and CEO. And so he was president CEO and chairman of the board 
all the way through um, the 90s. And when so up to when John Chambers took over. He actually, he his succession plan was John Chambers. So he mm-hmm. brought John yeah. Chambers in, yes, mm-hmm, and remained chairman of the board for a while and then chairman emeriti and is now uh, the chair of the Cisco Foundation. He mm-hmm. invented the Cisco Academies that are all around the world. Brilliant move. He introduced corporate philanthropy into the lexicon of corporate America, an incredible leader and someone to whom we show a great deal of respect, love, kindness, and we steward the dollars that he he earned and recognize the sacrifices he made with family time. And you know when he's flying all around the world, standing up Cisco systems, those, those sacrifices with his family. So we take the work we do here very seriously, but we have a great time doing it. Uh-huh. It's funny. I've worked my life's been in corporate big agencies and I was working for Gray in San Francisco at the time and we pitched for Cisco back in, must have been 2001. And I remember when we were doing all our research into the backstory of it and the, the founding couple that came up with the router idea and all that. So it's, it's funny. And I saw the name, I thought, hang on a second, I think that's Cisco. But So anyway, that's good. So, okay, so talk about disrupting philanthropy and the work that you do and having fun doing it. So when we look at at our community, we tend to look at it in, with, with multiple lenses, economic, environmental, political. How, who are all the players that we need to have at the table to solve a problem? So let me give you an example of what this might look like. We went into a community in Florida and it was a new community to Carrie and John. They didn't know who the nonprofits were that were doing the best work or work that would align with the values of the foundation. And so we convened a roundtable of the top charities, United Way, all these folks to identify what was the biggest problem in their community. It boiled down to, and it, it almost always boils down to poverty, lack of access to opportunity, transportation falls in there somewhere, affordable housing falls in there somewhere. And so what we do is kind of pick the cabinet of who's going to be leading this effort. Multidisciplinary, multi-agency solution-based approach to solving for the biggest problem in that community. And we would convene, they would convene regularly. We would come in and convene with them on a monthly basis and they would present progress toward the solution and identify places where we might be able to come in as a funder and amplify that, that issue or propel it forward faster with some funding. And so we've done that a number of times in communities across the country, and, and it's been incredibly successful. It's, it's very time-consuming, as you can well imagine, but it, yeah. it starts to get at the root cause of what is, is the biggest challenge of the community, rather than... I am the hunger relief center. Therefore, I shall focus on providing healthy and adequate food for our community. Mm. No, there's a bigger there's a bigger issue here, and the issue is families need you because they don't have jobs yeah. that can provide for food for themselves. So, where's our career training and our recareering and our reskilling and our upskilling organization? It's also that they can't afford it because they can't afford their rent or they're sleeping in the woods in Florida. We all have to come together for a solution. We all have a role in our thumbprint on this solution. And until we all work together, we're going to remain isolated. We're not going to shorten the line at the food bank. We're going to lengthen it. And what we want to do is shorten the line at the food bank. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it, that is very interesting. I call ourselves venture philanthropists because we we dig in, we roll up our sleeves, and we work as hard as our as our nonprofit partners at coming up with the solutions for the community. Because mm-hmm. I I consulted um, in 2019 for an organization called Epic, run by a guy called Alexander Mars, is a a sort of successful tech entrepreneur in France. Their model is just they just focus on children and and youth and around education and health there's, there's basically four pillars to it but it's they they identify the most high performing nonprofits in the areas in the countries they look at and then they they support them for 3 years in unrestricted grants but the thing i always found when we were working with them is it was that connected tissue and all the other externalities are connected saying it's all very well going and say we're going to focus on child mental health or we're going to focus on whether it's with the Ali Forney Centre in New York for the LGBT community what about all the other the factors that are, that are related to the situation that these kids find themselves in and it's the first time I've heard of an organisation that is approaching it the way that you're describing But I suppose it requires you to be of a scale and of the financial resources to be able to to, to create that connective tissue to the issue in a specific community. Because I suppose once you can do that and you can build a a model or, let's say, a theory of change and success, you can then apply it to other other communities. Because I I would expect it's scalable once you find a, a series of solutions. That's right. And they're all hyper-localized. So uh-huh. what happens in, in Dinellan, Florida is not going to apply in Racine, Wisconsin. They're very different communities, very different challenges and issues. We're working right now um, in Dane County in Wisconsin to look at the issues around African-American um, infant mortality. It's off the charts. We did a round of COVID funding that we partnered with our, our, our United Ways and community foundations that were part of our orbit already and said, bring to us some of your organizations that are under $500,000 a year in an operating budget. They can apply for a maximum of $25,000, but we want to make sure their doors remain open through, through COVID. And what we found in our third round of a million dollars was this, this theme in Madison, African-American maternal health and infant mm-hmm. mortality among the African-American community. And so we're working now with providers to do exactly that model, figure out what the challenges are that are, are causing this, this, this high rate in both categories, um, understand what is already happening in the community and convene other thought partners and some capital from mortgage to help amplify and propel their work forward faster. How do you identify the communities and zero in on them? It, this was very interesting. Dane County United Way brought us a handful of applicants. Mm-hmm. And what we read in them, there was a common thread. And the common thread was African-American mother health and morbidity of children, of the babies. And so we were reading them. And all of a sudden, we're like, it, is anybody else recognizing what this common theme is here? We've, we have a serious problem in, in Madison that we need to get behind and figure out how we can help alleviate some of these infant infant mortality and improve maternal health amongst our African-American neighbors. And so it was in reviewing those grants, grants uh, from organizations that we would never have known if it weren't for our partners. 
And so the other thing that we really believe in at, at Mortgage Family Foundation is grow your network of people that you know and trust and respect. And from that network, you, we will learn and find and discover opportunities just like the one we did and are working mm -hmm. on right now in Madison. So I suppose then that if there so there are organizations that are highly attuned to hyper-local issues, they become aware that your mission is to address that type of thing. They can come to you and apply for grants. We will, we will ask to be invited into their convenings and bring, and bring a lens from the foundation, as well as be a great listening partner. And mm -hmm. when we hear a need, be able to respond to that need. Wow. And do you put people inside the organizations to assist them? We don't. We, we come in on a monthly basis and, and get basically briefed on progress for the month, understand the identified needs, and figure mm -hmm. out what of those needs Mortgage can take care of and if we have other partners that can help with some of the needs that we, we can't address. Wow. Yeah, so it is, let's say it's, it's leveraging the power of your network. It really is leveraging the power. Yeah. Very cool. So Carrie's the chief disruptor. You're the deputy disruptor. And she, I've watched her do a TED talk and she talks about her pillars of disruption as time and patience, calling your network, fail forward and, and fail forward and finish and seek compound results. How does that affect your day to day? I mean, there, I mean, it's, you know, the time and patience, understandable. I'm calling your network. You, you just explained that, but it's the, it's the failing forward and finish. I'd like for you to expand upon and seek compound results. So the fail forward and finish really relates to take the chance, say yes to an idea and a leader that you believe there's that in. Yes, there's that yes again. Yes, that's right. And use, use philanthropic capital as your courage money to prove a concept from which then state, municipal, or federal dollars can come in and, and support it behind us. Uh -huh. So like, like your work at Epic, we tend to be in for three years. We want to prove the concept, create the level of disruption that we're desiring. If we don't create it, we, we knew we, going in that there was a chance it may or may not go. We believed more likely that it would be a go, but there's always that chance that it, it fails. Where we find things to not succeed tends to be through leadership. If we have a leadership change, what we call it in the foundation is, is this project superintendent proof? Meaning if we get a new superintendent, does this idea of a pedagogical shift in the classroom go with that prior superintendent because they bring in their own ideas? We want to avoid situations where the risk of losing a leader during the project and, and de developing it, a proof mm -hmm. of concept, we don't want to see a turnover in, in leadership. We want to see it through, prove the concept. And from that, then if, you know, hopefully it's sticky enough of a solution and successful enough of a solution that it remains. But there are times that when that hasn't been the case where, where we, we have lost leadership and the projects peter out over time. Uh, so that's, that's the, that's the fail forward, fail fast. It's take the chance, say yes, use philanthropic capital as courage money. Compounded results. This one is very important at the foundation. We want to look at projects that are, have the ability of touching at least a million people. Now, when you think about a small organization in Madison, Wisconsin, focusing on African-American maternal health, 
it's going to be a long time. Remember, these are organizations with $500,000 or less annual operating budget. It's going to take a long time for that organization to hit a million people. Mm-hmm. But when we look at the full ecosystem of people working to solve this problem in Madison, it's not going to take us long at all because we're going to have generations of babies who live and have their own babies. And so we have a long view on, on our success. When we say we want our projects to at least impact a million people, it's a long view. And that long view is where you compound your results. And so mm-hmm. let's pull it down more closely to, to, to you or I. Paul and I are members at Montview Boulevard Presbyterian Church. We give $3,600 a year to the church. Over 10 years, that's $36,000. That's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot that can be done through the ministry over the course of 10 years. There's a lot of people that can be served with our $36,000 over the course of 10 years, plus the 1,200 other members in our congregation. So that's that's how we look at compounding. There's a role, a point at which only the real systemic issues can be addressed by government and by public policy and taxation and a more equitable society. And I think, you know, if you look at that in relation to where we are today as we certainly in New York 70% of people have been vaccinated and it feels like we're coming out of COVID and obviously other parts of the country aren't aren't quite the same but in the world of uh, post-COVID where it's laid bare the inequities of the society we live in whether it be around homelessness educational opportunities the vast financial inequity between the wealth wealthy and and and, and the poor where does philanthropy, how does philanthropy change post-COVID? Are you in your in the Mortgage Family Foundation having to pivot or adjust your focus because of COVID? Is there any sort of change that has uh, required yes. any radical rethink in terms of you or just the philanthropic sector generally? During, during COVID, we pivoted very quickly. We were one of the first foundations in, in Colorado to step up with a lead gift for Governor Polis's COVID leadership response. I served on that committee. We ended up over the course of a year grant make, raising and grant making $26 million to individuals, organizations, and, and private businesses to keep just to support our community through, through COVID. We then did a round of a million dollars that we looked to our 685 partners that we had funded up until that point in time, selected 90 of them to apply. And we ended up funding 46 of the, of the 90. And we looked then at the needs not slowing down, rather ramping up. And the needs were shifting. And it was interesting because as I was reading every week, I would read you know 60 to 80 proposals for the governor's COVID response grants. It was clear to me reading those grant applications, the nuancing that was happening. So going from protective equipment to food, to early childhood education for our first responders, to undocumented families if, that, who are still having to go to work, they don't have the benefit of having sick time, vacation yeah. time. If they're not working, they're not earning a living. And the complexities of those communities, I was reading them every single week. So we then did a second round of COVID funding for a million dollars. And this time we went to our foundation, our community foundation partners and our United Ways, those that we have worked with in the past. And that's where the first criteria was half a million dollar operating budget or less. 
and they can apply for up to $25,000. That was so incredibly successful. We thought, uh, we don't know these organizations in, the, they're not in our orbit who are coming to us, but we trust the recommendation of the foundation or the United Way. We have been absolutely blown away with the organizations we have met through our partner uh, funders. And so in, in that round, we, we spread it across 17 states, community foundations and United Ways across 17 states. It was so successful. The thank you notes, the notes saying you, your, your grant of $8,000 provided four months worth of rent for my organization to stay open and serving our clients. Wow. They were so deeply profound. We thought we need to do this again. Yeah. And we went to our same 14 partners across 17 states and, and we had a whole nother round of a million dollars. And this, the notes that are coming in still, Mark, are, are so profoundly heartwarming. And, and in, be, yeah. in doing these, these three rounds uh, of COVID funding, we, along with the Ford Foundation and many other foundations, committed to no reporting requirements, loosening all restrictions. Uh, these were fully unrestricted grants. Uh-huh. And at the Mortgage Family Foundation, we don't do that. We, we invest in an idea and a leader and expect transformation. And so it was a big, bold move for us to take. And we did it generously and, and, and lovingly. But the response has been quite the opposite. The information we're getting back from these, these three rounds is phenomenal. And it really is, has been impactful. So we, we, we have decided we are not doing additional COVID rounds. But what, what COVID has taught us is... That when you look at organizations and their 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 financial health, we we have to have a different lens on that. And the lens is that if an organization has done well and has a good amount of reserves in the bank, it may not look like they need our money. Yet they need our money. That's how they are. We're stable. There were a number of organizations throughout Colorado that I was reading with the governor's COVID response fund that I was really surprised at how financially strong they were. Which means, up until the pandemic, they were doing well. They were they were being fiscally responsible and smart, mm-hmm. and were going to be able to weather a storm like the one that was coming. So I was really really pleased to see that through all of the grant rounds of COVID. But it also taught us that just because the balance sheet looks good, it doesn't mean they still need support from the Mortgage Family Foundation. And one of the other things that we have discovered over the course of years is that if once Mortgage Family Foundation is involved, it's kind of like a, a you know, a, a herd of penguins. That when the first penguin dives into the water, others will dive in after it. And yeah. so we really look at ourselves in that role of, of taking the first step and being the courageous one to say, yes, we believe in this, we're going to do it. And now let's go out and find some some other partners to help with this funding. Mm-hmm. So that, that you know... That's that has happened during COVID, where we've been able to bring other other funders along um, on this journey. The other thing internally, when we look inward uh, at our organization during COVID, we we hired three people. Of course, like everybody else, we all worked remotely, which was a really easy pivot for us to do because we traveled so much up until COVID that you never knew where any of the team were around the country or the world. Very very easy to pivot to remote working. But what we did was was work to establish a climate and a culture of love and compassion and empathy that was easy to have when we were all here in this building, we were all breaking bread together for lunch. We would, you know, 
take a break in the, in the afternoon and go on a bike ride or walk up to the park and, and have a picnic. What was harder to do, and, and I think we ended up doing it really well, was creating a climate of culture and that, that connectedness with people being dispersed around the country in their homes. And, you know, we did that, Paul and I did it uh, by just every other week sending a love note or we sent lottery tickets and said, we feel like we've already run the lottery and send a scratch off ticket to them doing takeout Tuesdays and providing a $25 gift card to Grubhub on, on a, on a random Tuesday, things just to let people know we're thinking about them. I was just downstairs and our building manager, Sabrina, she said, you know, I'm, I'm leaving to go be with my mom. She's had a, a surgical procedure. And she said, I'm just trying to eat through the food that I know my husband won't eat. And I said, like, what, what is it? She said, well, do you remember last year in, in the spring when you sent me a, a packet of seeds and the seeds were lettuce and you said, plant some seeds of hope. And I don't know, that's what we sent. They volunteered all back this spring and she has abundance of lettuce and it was all from <laughs> that little love note that we sent. So we did that not only for my team here at Mortgage Family Foundation, but for 80 friends, we would do that every other week. That's brilliant. I love it. I want to get to quick far. We've got about 20 minutes left, but I do want to ask you about education. You make, you mentioned earlier the power of changing the perception of youth from being a burden to being a benefit on society. And having interviewed quite a few educational innovators, I do believe that education has potential to be the greatest accelerant for positive change in society over generations, obviously. And as we, I mean, obviously there are the short-term changes you can create in communities and in society through philanthropy. But in terms of longer-term impact, education is that platform for doing that. So I'd like you just to talk a little bit about that and also where the role of environmental philanthropy in the, for environmental uh, organizations fit into the foundation. Sure. We... Um, Carrie Mortgage had a vision when she was lived in Florida of bringing up the next generation of philanthropists and how are we going to to share what we've learned so far, what we will learn in the future, and and give that knowledge over to young people. In that thought process, she walked into Olympia High School in Orlando, Florida, told the the woman at the front desk, "I want to." to meet with somebody to talk about students giving away my money. And the lady at the front desk was as shocked as you can well imagine. And she said, well, I'm not sure who you would talk to. Let me go and grab the librarian. And so the, the founding librarian in Olympia high school, Carrie and uh, Carrie's assistant at the time took the next number of months to formulate what is called now the student support foundation. We have 18 student support foundations across the country and the concept is we, we establish a club with a strong teacher or some advisor. They have to be strong because they have to stay hands-off. They have to let the kids develop bylaws, develop their grant-making priorities, establish the grant forms, do grant review, keep a budget. And then what we do is every year we provide $4,000 worth of funding 
we expect them to raise a minimum of 250 for our college clubs. We ask that the president of the college matches our 4,000 and they grant make within their own community, their own school community for direct needs. We wouldn't allow a club, for example, to go and support the SPCA out in their community. It has to all be internally faced on grants. And what it shows is we tend to get young people in our SSF chapters that probably could use a little help themselves because they're in schools that tend to be Title I schools. They're schools of greater need. Now you've got students who probably could use some help being the ones to give the help. And that shift, that, that identity shift is so powerful. And what it leads to is the belief that we all have something to give. You don't have to have all the zeros that we are blessed to have at Mortgage Family Foundation. You, for example, could plant a row in your garden for a hunger relief center and donate the produce. There is something that we all can do. And this, this club and the philosophy behind the Student Support Foundation chapters is exactly that. It shows you that you have a role to play. Uh-huh. That's fantastic. Okay. Environment? The environment. This is so Environmental interesting issues. Environment is one of the biggest existential risks that we have and one of the least funded arenas in, in philanthropy. I am happy to report that it is up. The, this a new report just released, a, a preliminary report, Giving USA 2021. Environment has risen. So giving to conservation and the environment was the second highest increase in giving next to public society benefit. Public society benefit, that one's crystal clear. It's a pandemic. It's COVID-related yeah. funding. They saw the greatest increase. The second greatest increase in giving was in the environment and animal welfare. And what I love about this is it's not a, a decreased amount of giving for 2020. We gave more in 2020 than we did in the prior year. So the, the, total, the total giving was compared to our GDP is 2.3%. It has always been 2% of the GDP. GDP went down, giving went up, and it now is 2.3% of the GDP in the U.S. That's That's phenomenal. It's $444 billion was given last year. So I see us ticking up. I I think the biggest challenge around environment and animal welfare is the scale of what of which the problem exists mm-hmm. and what can I, John Farner, what can you, Mark, do to have, yeah. really have a true impact on that? Well, there's a lot of things we can do. We can be, we can consume differently. We can reduce our waste. We, we, we can go from canned Perrier or canned bubbly water to having a soda stream on our counter. There are many things that we can do individually and demonstrating that for the people who are in our orbit and mm-hmm. shouting it from the rooftops why this is important. You know, when we look at job creation and we look at two-generational approach to ending poverty, and, and we look at all of these other challenges and things that we're working on, if we don't fix our planet, none of that other stuff matters. Do you do you know um, Joshua Spodek? No. I need to introduce you to him. I think you'd be great to be on his podcast. He runs a podcast called The Sustainable Life. Very interesting character. He's based in New York. I won't get into his whole backstory, but fascinating. And he challenges people to change micro behaviors around the environment. And by interviewing people, he'll eventually get to people like Oprah 
who, when they announce and they commit to his challenges, it creates an exponential effect on everyone's behaviour. So he has gone zero waste pretty much for the last five years. He hasn't flown since 2016. He uh, has gone vegetarian. He turns his fridge off. It's incredible the things he does. And he's a really good guy. I think I'll connect you after this. So let's get to the quick fire questions. What principles do you stand by? Mutual respect, mutual trust, and mutual understanding that leads to empathetic listening. Wonderful. I love that. I'm going to just go back. I wanted to ask you a question. Where do you want to be when we hit 2030? I want to see more solutions-oriented focus on our environment. I want to see that we have really made progress in the case of equitable access to opportunity in our country and equitable and equal application of justice, both at the street level, in the courts, mm. in sentencing. We have always stood by that at the Mortgage Family Foundation because it's, the, it's my value, it's Carrie and John's value, it's the value of the family. And so having that penetrate outside of the walls of this organization and outside of the people who are in our orbit, that's what I'd like to see for 2030. It's a great vision. What hard choices have you had to make personally that have been tough at the time, but did turn out to be the right decision? This one was tough at the time. When I was looking for a faith home, I had been raised Catholic and it, it wasn't, you know, gone through all of the CCD and everything. And it didn't, it wasn't feeding me. It wasn't, it didn't feel like I was worship or connecting with a, a being higher than higher than myself or higher than all of us. And it was when I, I made a friend who was a pastor in the Lutheran church and I could have conversations with him about the teachings of the church and Martin Luther and understanding, you know, the Protestant religion. And it started speaking to me about, based on grace rather than on works and trying to earn your way into heaven rather than being a child of God and, and you are going to be in heaven. And it is how you live your life here on this earth in service to others rather than in, 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 in service to self to go to heaven. That was a really big departure for me. It was a hard one when I had to leave the Catholic church by becoming a Lutheran. And so it, it also was hard for me because it, my entire family was Catholic and it was all we knew. And so that was a, that was a tough separation for me. I'm grateful beyond belief for that. I, I have, you know, go back to church with my family and I listen to the service, listen to the homily and I leave uninspired. And then I go to now our church converted from Lutheran to Presbyterian and I leave there so action oriented and ready to take the next step of service and of ministry in our community. And our, our church is a big, it's a big church. What, it, what were driving principles for me in this church was that it had to be high church, my Catholic upbringing, yeah. upbringing, and it had to be very focused on ministry and the outreach to the community. And so, you know, as a result, um, throughout the pandemic, Paul and I would make a uh, hundred lunch bags, sandwiches and fruit and you name it, and take it to the senior support center where they serve homeless senior citizens. And, and, and we've done that now for eight years. So long before the pandemic, but it's, it's just that level of service. Again, back to uh, the differences, the optics of my family and, and myself, it is that, that outward view of I can make a difference for somebody else. If I have time at the end, I need to tell you a story about Father Graham Napier, 
who is the the father of the St. John's in the village in the West Village here in New York and what he did during the pandemic. But I'll come back to that, hopefully. Where do you go to discover new ideas? Actually, discovery of new ideas happens in three places for me. One is in our gardens because it's such a tranquil and peaceful place. The second is in our hot tub because we use it all the time. And the third (laughs) is on, on bike rides. I can get lost in thinking on a bike ride. Yeah. It's like Darwin's thinking path. What's the biggest problem worth solving? Reconciliation. We have a lot of work to do as a nation. This artificial battle between 1619, 1776, it's not one or the other. It's yes and. It is all of this. It goes back to to communities who were here long before anybody arrived on these shores. So having a complete and honest view of this this plot of land that we call the United States of America and what it took to get to where we are today is what I think we need to spend time on. I will give you an example. You do not throw a birthday party or a wedding at Auschwitz. Mm -hmm. We do at plantations. That has to stop. Yeah, that's great. A very good example. Yeah. Okay. Four people from history that you'd invite over to dinner to help you plan for a better future. Don't have to be so, from history as in dead, but they could be yeah. through the arc of no, history. No, there, there's a, a couple that come to mind, a few that come to mind, more than, probably more than four. Frances Weisbart Jacob. She is the woman who convened other, other philanthropists and leaders in Denver directly and began what is now United Way. The mm-hmm. first United Way began here in Denver 133 years ago, and the impact of United Way around the world is profound. And, you know, we look at United Way as the way that we can take care of our own backyard. There are some really, really great ones, and there are some that are, that are stinkers that aren't that good. Mm-hmm. We tend to be in orbit with those that are amazing. They have amazing leadership, amazing boards. They are well mission aligned. We have a number of them that received the McKinsey Scott funding. So we know that we're with the right United Ways, but that Francis Weisbart Jacob is the one. Martin Luther King, I think with where we are today in progress toward recognizing race relations and recognizing the unequal access of an application of justice, I think it would be phenomenal to have him. And I would add into that Cesar Chavez for the very same reasons. Mm-hmm. And into that, I would add Harvey Harvey Milk. Harvey Milk. We, yeah. we have so many, so many things that are real and that are a result of the work of, of these, of these people that I would love to have them see, experience, feel the struggle that they helped us understand when they were alive. Harvey Milk had this great quote that I've used on this. So where I interviewed Father Graham Napier, it's for this project called Back the Neighborhood, looking at how do you regenerate, um, neighborhoods post-COVID and re-knit the fabric of the neighborhood and on the website I put this quote from Harvey Milk which is if we want to if we wish to rebuild our cities we must start must start with our neighborhoods and I think that you know it's so everything you're doing in terms of that hyper local focus sort of builds out on what his whole philosophy is you know you've got to and I, I interviewed this guy in an ex-drug dealer from the streets of Philadelphia that's changing, gone back to the block where he was shot 11 times and created the Young Chances Foundation to change people's lives one house at a time. 
because he wow. believes that's how you do it. You don't do a city neighborhood. You have to start really small. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah, we could go off at tangents on that one. What's a question no one asks you, but you wish they would? I'm, I'm going to turn this one around a little bit and I'm going to ask you the question that I love asking of others. Yeah. Mark, what is going to be your legacy? And I have to answer it. You don't have to, but let it live in your heart. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I could come A up. friend well, asked me that, that question and it, it I, I that, don't have the answer. That I'm is looking a, daily for that answer. But I, yeah, listen, I wake up <laughs> thinking about that and we all have to. I mean, it's, I mean, it's part of the reason, I suppose, I, I was on, I got called the other day by, I have to look at the time, but these two young guys in Scotland, where I come from, a friend of mine's son's friends, and they're, they're both starting a podcast about helping their generation understand where to focus their efforts in their careers because they feel let down by society. And they asked me about why I do the podcast. And I said, you know, if I have to think about when I reflected on why I started it, but what, you know, I've spent a a misguided career in advertising, selling things to people that they don't need for money that they don't have. And I thought, you know, if I have one good superpower is connecting people. And I thought that's the my power the way that Malcolm, Malcolm Gladwell talked about mavens and connectors and the tipping point mm-hmm. that, you know if, if I can see connections where other people can't connecting people it has to be a focus of what I do so I thought well doing a podcast where I interview people that I ask who I interview next and then spot connections between them and then connect them like you and uh, Joshua is an example of where something serendipitous could come and and hence why, I mean, I suppose I call it the impossible network. So I suppose somewhere around that area of connecting people and building communities and networks is something I think where I'll, my legacy will focus, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's that's the answer. Short answer to your question. It's a complex, it's a complex question. Really. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I think I'll add that to my podcast questions so there you go that's that's you've just had an impact impossible question what would your advice be to someone that's about to graduate and study that's being told that their ambition or their goal is impossible this is this is a real situation of of level using a leveling up approach so Uh when we talked about the environment and we talked about how large of a challenge it is and what part can i do using a level up plan break it down into steps and be patient with yourself It doesn't have to happen right now. I know we're very much a kind of a selfie society and now, 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 now. Allow yourself patience. Allow yourself patience and have a plan. I like that answer. No one's given that. What's your go-to karaoke song coming out of the pandemic? Oh, it has to be this. Let me think about this one. This has got to be, oh, Delta Dawn. I love a good old Delta Dawn. So being born and raised in Montana, Uh I I was surrounded by country music. that was really what only thing we had. And Delta Dawn was an eight track that my uncle Jeff always played. We would go to the drive-in movies with him. We listened to Delta Dawn on the way there and on the way home. And it was, it, it has such fond memories for me. And you can find that pretty much on every okay. track. Yes. A series or film 
you watched during lockdown that someone might not have seen that you think they should? Um, the series Halston. It's a five-part series about Halston, the designer. It was phenomenal yep. to learn about him. That's and fantastic. then it was so good. And then the film, it, it just recently we saw it. It's Cruella. It is so, it's full of twists and turns, and it's phenomenal. Cool. Okay. A book that you want us to offer listeners that can submit a good comment in Instagram or on the website? Waste-Free Kitchen by Dana Gunders. Oh, it is a one. phenomenal yeah. book. Yes, I love that book. Yeah. I mean, in fact, we read it on, I read it on an airplane coming home from New York, and it, it was at the point where I was working with our city councilwoman and said, you know, why aren't we composting? in our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. We should be composting for free and charging for trash. It's the opposite. Mm-hmm. We charge people to compost now and trash is free. As you've, definitely got to connect. You, you've definitely got to connect <laughs> with Joshua Spodek, that's for sure. Final yeah. question. Who should we interview next? So there are obvious ones like Christine Bonero, Carrie Morgridge. There is one though that I, this is my answer, my final answer, Jereen Peterson. Yeah. Jereen is has her thumbprint on so many things, youth oriented and youth focused and providing opportunity for opportunity youth throughout Colorado through her career and is now uh, retired and consulting. The stories that she has and the experience that she has lived are so incredibly rich. Every time I'm with her, I learn, I'm more inspired. I want to do more. She has helped us significantly enter the world of foster care and been looking, unpacking foster care in a very real manner. She would be fascinating. Cool. Well, we'll follow up once episodes live for that connection. And I'm just going to thank you and acknowledge you for your incredible journey, service to others, your fight for equitable education and justice, and for feeding your own soul, but probably feeding the souls of others. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's been a joy to spend this time with you. Thank you, Mark. Wonderful. Okay. Thanks, John. Okay. Cheers. Bye. Okay. That's all for this week, folks. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate, recommend, or review, depending on where you listen. And if you have someone you'd like us to interview, just DM us on Instagram at The Impossible Network or email us at info at theimpossiblenetwork.com. And please give our other podcast, The Raw Hospitality Show, a listen. They are both Fabrica Collective Productions. See you next time.